0: Welcome to Frankly Judaic, a podcast that explores cutting-edge Judaic studies research conducted at the University of Michigan. When you think about black-Jewish relations, what comes to mind? Maybe Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel joining with Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders for the famous Selma March in 1965— or perhaps you've read the memoir Love Song Becoming a Jew by the African American writer and scholar Julius Lester, who converted to Judaism in the early 80s. And if you've studied American Jewish history, then you may understand the significance of East European Jewish immigrants interacting with African Americans in places like New York and Chicago during the early 20th century. The scholarly literature about black Jewish relations is vast and complex. But for Frankel fellow Eli Rosenblatt, that body of scholarship is somewhat limited. It admired itself or was
1: grounded in kind of um, mystical notions of affiliation,
0: of identification, empathy, and cultural transfer. Rosenblatt's research aims to expand our knowledge of Black-Jewish relations by exploring how it manifested during the European Enlightenment and afterwards, looking specifically at how Yiddish writers, poets, and intellectuals in Eastern Europe reacted to and interacted with African-American writing and culture. Yiddish writers from the early modern
1: period, so say um, from the 1600s or 1700s until today, they read, imagined, visited, and immigrated to societies in which enslaved peoples from Africa and indentured labor from other parts of the
0: colonial world formed the basis of the economy. And in places such as South Africa, Brazil, Argentina, the United States, the Caribbean Islands, Rosenblatt says, the products of these historical encounters were always augmented by the Jewish imagination through the circulation of texts and ideas. So for example,
1: translation Uh, was one particularly significant and important way that Eastern European Jews came to encounter the vocabulary and the lexicon of racism, of racial difference, and
0: also of the
1: politics of racial
0: justice. Now, on some level, Yiddish writers may have identified with African-American culture and politics in terms of a shared experience of minority status and political powerlessness. But Rosenblatt says a lot of Yiddish writers were interested in racism and its effects, mostly from a Marxist perspective. There is, a, in, especially in literature about
1: African-American culture, or about the experience of black Americans,
0: a sense that
1: racism is the result of capitalist exploitation. It's a cover for... Uh, the exploitation of the proletariat by the capitalist class. And so when you find, especially in the 20th century, translations of black literature um, and other kinds of inquiries into uh, black culture in the Americas, it often comes from a materialist conception of history uh, and, and Marxist uh, philosophy.
0: But it's a mistake, Rosenblatt says, to think of Yiddish writers during the early Soviet Union as merely shills for Soviet ideology. Yiddish poets, novelists, and thinkers explored a wide range of topics from a variety of perspectives. One such writer, Itzik Kipnis, was a novelist and short story writer. His first novel, Kadoshi Munteg, or Months and Days, published in 1926, is considered to be the first notable literary achievement in Soviet Yiddish fiction. Rosenblatt, though, is mostly interested in Kipnis' translation of Huckleberry Finn, published in 1929. The translation of Huck Finn, its modern translation, appeared in 1926
1: in Russian. And my guess is is that he based the Yiddish translation of Huck Finn on that very popular 1926 Russian language edition. In the Yiddish, he's largely successful in capturing Twain's humor— But less successful in transferring Twain's virtuosity in terms of American linguistic registers, his reproduction of African-American vernacular English. Although, of course, we know in the Yiddish translation that Jim is portrayed as African-American, as a black man, you don't get the same kind of uh, foray into voicing an African-American dialect or vernacular English from Missouri or from the Midwest or the Upper South, uh, the way that you do in the original.
0: What you do get is a faithful reproduction of Twain's novel in terms of the plot elements and narrative episodes. As for why Kipnis chose to translate Huck Finn in the first place, the answer speaks directly to Rosenblatt's central point, that fixating too much on Jewish identification with African American life and culture misses much of the complexity of Yiddish writing on the subject. Instead, Rosenblatt speculates, Kipnis was mostly interested in advancing Yiddish literature and culture on the world stage.
1: I think, in, in a sense, you know, translating something like, like Huck Finn, a masterwork of American literature, a defining novel, was part of creating a cosmopolitan and multilingual and global sense of Yiddish culture in the 1920s. I should say also that Huck Finn was part of the Kulturliga's Allgemeine Bibliothek, which was a series of books. Some of them were about natural history, geography, geology, and the natural sciences, all of which were meant to give in Yiddish a Western or Western European literary education to the Eastern European Jewish
0: readership. As for how Kipnis's translation was received by Yiddish readers, Rosenblatt says that's hard to say. Part of his research is to understand how Kipnis imagined his audience and how he imagined the novel would affect his readers. You know, we know that in the United States, this book is still to this day a highly
1: controversial novel, mostly because there's a debate over the extent to which Mark Twain uncritically espoused uh, racist views in his depiction of Jim. You know, how does that kind of controversy, which is really a 20th century controversy in the United States, did that translate to Yiddish readers? Do we see that Yiddish readers were inculcated with racist or racial views from this novel? It's hard to say, but my general thesis is that the idea of America— had a significant influence on Eastern European Jewry long before mass migration to the United States, but also among Eastern European Jews that chose not to migrate. Uh, it's this global sense of American culture that I'm trying to get a handle on, specifically in the, in the Yiddish-speaking world.
0: To that end, Rosenblatt is also interested in another Soviet Yiddish writer, Leb Kvitko, who was best known for his 1933 novel Tzvei Haverim, or Two Friends, which told the story of the friendship between Liam, a Jewish boy, and his non-Jewish Slavic friend, Petrik. According to the YIVO Yiddish Encyclopedia, the novel was among the most printed and read works of Yiddish fiction in the early Soviet Union. Rosenblatt argues that Tzvei Haverim was, in fact, an adaptation of Huckleberry Finn into Yiddish, with the Jewish Liam as Huck and the Slavic Petrick as Jim. Clues throughout the novel support Rosenblatt's thesis. The first are
1: the kinds of stereotyping uh, that come through. The notion of a Jewish proximity to civilization, to the urban space to uh, Jewish connections to the urban underclass in the way that Huck Finn is understood in Twain's novel, and also this this kind of doubling of Jim and Petrick in the sense that Petrick is um, an agricultural or of agricultural origin. Uh, He doesn't come from a literate culture. And what brings him together with Liam is a sense of emerging class solidarity, that although one is from the country and one is from the city, One is from a particular ethnic group and the other is from another ethnic group. What really unites them
0: is a common struggle against the capitalist class. Other clues are even more obvious, such as the centrality of a river and a raft in Kvitko's novel. Plus, although Rosenblatt can't prove it, it's likely that Kvitko read Kipnis's translation of Huck Finn and possibly the Russian translation that appeared in 1926. And it's possible that Kvikvo was then inspired to create a new kind of Soviet novel that imagined Jewish-Slavic brotherhood in the framework of Twain's story. When one looks at it in
1: transnational or transatlantic perspective, it sheds light, I think, on the power of American culture to guide or to frame a notion of the Jewish future, not only in cities like New York or Chicago, but also in Kiev um, and also in Warsaw and places where Eastern European Jews had to also grapple with the politics of ethnic or racial or national difference.
0: Like Tzvei Haverim, Yiddish literary works of the early Soviet Union are generally less known among scholars because they've been seen as uncritically supporting Soviet ideology, part of which sought to erase ethnic differences in identities among Soviet citizens, including Jewish identity. But many Soviet Yiddish writers were in fact critical of Soviet ideology especially its hostility toward Jewish particularity and autonomy. You know, my
1: sense from this book, or from these books, from these translations, is that just as there's a debate about whether Huck Finn is racist or anti-racist, there can also be a debate about whether Leoman Petrick is completely for Jewish-Slavic brotherhood and Jewish-Slavic integration, or whether it imagines uh, something else whether it imagines a world in which Jews and non-Jews uh, maintain a certain kind of cultural autonomy. And I think that kind of argument, that kind of debate uh, is at the core of the project to get a better sense of how Kipnis and Kvitko both used the, the metaphor of American racism to understand the Jewish relationship with non-Jews in the early Soviet Union.
0: In a similar vein, Rosenblatt also explores the work of Polish born Yiddish modernist poet Zishe Bagish. Like Kipnis, Bagish was also a translator. And inspired by a Yiddish translation of the Harlem Renaissance poet Langston Hughes in the Warsaw literary journal Literarische Blätter, in 1936, Bagish published a book in which he retranslated Hughes's poetry into Yiddish and even invented African American folk songs. And in his translations, Boggish channels white European racist views of Africans. So
1: when he's translating Langston Hughes or he's translating spiritual. He he tries to reproduce the speech in a kind of uh, Yiddish primitive tone. Uh, The Yiddish becomes sort of monosyllabic or overly reliant on rhythm. You can kind of see how his broader ideas of racial difference come to bear on his translation into Yiddish of how a black poet might sound. And so for me, that's not about actually empathizing or identifying with African Americans but in a sense foreignizing African Americans or at least pivoting your translational practice off the strangeness or unusual nature of black speech especially as it as it sounds in Yiddish translation
0: Bagish was attracted to this material Rosenblatt argues by his interest in the relationship between race and class In that sense, I'm offering a new way of understanding black Jewish
1: relations, that it was not so much about identification or empathy with the cause of African Americans, but a sense that Jews, blacks, and pretty much everyone else shared a same fate or suffered from related forms of racist prejudice and that violent racism was the result, first and foremost, of capitalist Exploitation. And so I tend to think of Boggish less as someone who identified with African Americans, but someone who was interested in developing a Jewish form of white patronage. It's not so much about a notion of cultural transfer, but an interest in, in using the, the black voice as a conduit for understanding the nature of class war across the world.
0: Langston Hughes was widely translated into Yiddish from a variety of perspectives. In the Literarische Blätter, Rosenblatt says, he's presented as a vector of cultural nationalism.
1: Langston Hughes is portrayed as someone who has pride in his past, in his culture, and especially in the unique language of African Americans. He's celebrated, in a sense, in Literarische Blätter, as a kind of black national poet akin in some ways to the ways that Yiddish poets saw themselves as carriers of a longer Jewish poetic tradition and representatives of Jewish culture in the larger European sphere of high literature and poetry.
0: For Bagish, though, black poetry is most interesting as a way of understanding the artist as a dissident as a resistor, as
1: a figure who stands outside nationalist or capitalist paradigms. And so Boggish, who emphasizes primitive language, simple folk songs like the Ballad of John Henry, Negro Spirituals, the emphasis was on the black voice of labor, the black voice of the proletariat, the worker, the uneducated, the exploited. It wasn't an a portrayal of black culture as a high culture, but black culture as a low culture. And I think that in that sense, you can't look at Yiddish engagements, Yiddish language engagements with African-American culture as voiced monolithically. Um, They're multi-voiced and uh, they often manifest themselves in, in politically and aesthetically contradictory ways.
0: Today, at a time of renewed interest in black Jewish dynamics and concern about racism and anti-Semitism on the rise in America and around the world, Rosenblatt's research is valuable for helping us better understand the historical nuances of black Jewish relations beyond nostalgia for Jewish support for African Americans during the 1960s.
1: I think there's a perception that black Jewish relations, you know, I put that in quotes, is something objective that exists in history. And my objective is to show that this dialectic is rather a product of the imagination. So... If your main association with black Jewish relations is the American civil rights movement uh, with Ameri- with Abraham Joshua Heschel and Martin Luther King marching arm in arm, uh, I would say that fine, that's an extremely important and significant moment in the history, in the cultural history of black Jewish relations. But I also want people to think that Heschel himself was responding to a discourse that stretches back hundreds of years within Jewish culture and that he should be historicized, that he should be seen in a broader story of Jewish encounters, not only with African-Americans, but with the culture and politics of the Atlantic world. Um, You know, it's, it's really a question, you know, What's the future of Black-Jewish relations, not only in a political sense, in a cultural sense, but in the, in, the, in the idea? You know, is it a useful idea? Is it a useful dialectic? You know, why or why not? You know, I think that, that, that this kind of thing is, is important to, to think about.
0: That does it for this episode of Frankly Judaic, a production of the Gene and Samuel Frankel Center for Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. The executive producer of Frankly Judaic is Jeffrey Weidlinger, the director of the Frankel Center. You can find the Frankly Judaic podcast anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And we hope you'll leave us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks for listening.